You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from the home of the 1976 NFC champions, <laughs> it's the 252. What sports talk radio would talk, <laughs> talk, talk like if done by academics. I'm Chris Gertz, uh, professor of history at Bethel University, joined again by Chris Moore from political science and, and Sam Mulberry. So this is our second episode of the 252. I thought week one went pretty well, but I think we're going to hit our stride a little bit more this week as we uh, talk really about our own sports history in a sense. We're going to kind of interview each other about why we played, if we played, uh, why we follow, why we love, and why we don't love sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we'll get into a little bit of uh, kind of self-revelatory confessional territory in the second segment. Sure. Um, Stay tuned for that. Uh, We'll have a little bit more uh, sports history uh, coming up, but we should start by kind of following up where we left off last time. We kind of previewed the Super Bowl. Uh, It ended up being the lowest scoring Super Bowl in Super Bowl history. Uh, But not by much. Well, yeah, but it was a low score. By six six points, yeah. Yeah, but I don't know if that's what we all expected. Okay, Um, can I give my take on this? Yeah, well, I'm curious to hear. Because I have... Listen to the last two days of takes, and everybody's talking about how boring it was, how boring it was. This is recency biased because we lived through the 1980s, and you know what's boring? 55 to 10 is really boring. So this is actually what I, I, mean, I want to talk about other things too. But the football part I want to talk about is like how do we decide when low-scoring sporting events are boring or brilliant? Because like as a baseball guy, I think the best World Series games – are the low scoring? Oh, pitchers. like a pitcher's duel. Like Nineteen ninety one game seven is the greatest <laughs> baseball game. I'm biased, but like one nothing tenth inning. Here's how you judge if a game is 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 f- well, it, not entirely how it's fun to watch, but here's why the why the Super Bowl was not nearly the most boring Super Bowl because it was in the late in the fourth quarter when the Rams were driving on the series that ended up in Zerline missing the kick. You could play in your head. Mm-hmm. Well, they score a touchdown here, onside kick, they got a shot. Like, yep. Yep. like the game was in doubt into the to the end. Yeah, it, to pretty Nearly close to the end. end. Yeah, right. yeah. Again, if you if it's a blowout, you end up sending sometimes spending the second half wondering, do, do we keep watching this? You end up talking to the people around yeah. you more and not paying attention to the game. Yeah. Well, because my so, I was kind of half watching it, I should say. So tell me if I'm wrong. My sense is like what it actually revealed were some pretty great individual defensive performances and. Um, a pretty masterful coaching job by. It was a I, coaching chess match for sure. Yeah. Where, where one of them was <laughs> yes. dominating. Yeah, the other. right. Yeah. So one of the, th- the, the this is an unsatisfying answer, though I stand behind it and think it's accurate. Our sense of what a low what, what an, a low scoring game that's aesthetically pleasing versus a low scoring game that's not aesthetically pleasing is is profoundly culturally constructed mm-hmm. within the context of that sport. Mm-hmm. We often hear Americans don't will never embrace soccer because the the zero zero tie is. I think you mean nil-nil. <laughs> sure. <laughs> was that tedious? That was tedious. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Um, but in truth, Americans seem to be increasingly receptive to soccer in one-zero ties. And we, and, we, and we like hockey, and hockey often ends up in very low-scoring mm-hmm. games. And the same way, we have a sense that 
how basketball ought to be played or how football ought to be played. But even those things go through generational mm-hmm. shifts. And no one complained about 80 to 90 games of, of in basketball a decade and a half ago. Right. But now that would be considered a really ugly game. Yep. And now we need to have games that are in the 110s to 120s to be quote-unquote beautiful. Right? So there's that going on. But I think the the... In the context of that, this Super Bowl was comparatively "quote unquote" ugly, mm-hmm. in the sense that there were just fewer points than you would typically expect right. in a Super Bowl. And, game. and and I think the other thing that makes a low-scoring game uh, exciting is when things almost happen. Because you said one nothing, Game Seven of the World Series, super exciting, right? Right. Right. Because there were. Well, there were stakes, and there were all these moments where something almost happened, right? right? The most boring sporting event I ever went to was a Twins game, probably in 1993, uh, where the first pitch of the game, whether it was Twins against the Mariners, first pitch of the game's light-hitting Harold Reynolds hit a solo home run, and the game ended one to nothing. Oh. And as a kid, I, mm. I was so bored because the Twins never made it to second base in that game. Mm. A lot of double play, just a lot of, like, futility. And then the Mariners... Didn't do anything either. I think Griffey was probably 0 for 4, and it was like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. So same score, but it was painful to watch because nothing almost happened. Well, the other right. part of it then, because you mentioned, like, Griff, I mean, Ken Griffey, a Hall of Famer, doesn't have a good – I mean, the other thing that could redeem it is, like, a terrific individual performance by right. a superstar. Right. Like, I think everyone knows Tom Brady did not play his greatest right. Super right. Bowl game, right? And, and Jared Goff had possibly the worst right. Super Bowl game by a quarterback. Yeah, I mean, the, the highlight position – well <laughs> – uh, yeah, uh, but like what struck me is like for a while, like the MVP of well, ultimately ended up being a wider, like a slot receiver, mm-hmm. and the other candidate was the Rams punter, right? Was <laughs> right. by far it like the most win probability added were a couple of his punts at a Super Bowl record, and it just ended up highlighting aspects of the game that otherwise yeah. we culturally have constructed to be not especially important, not very well compensated. And I think it also then does point to the importance of coaching, which segues neatly, I think, into the result of our uh, NFL Mount Rushmore challenge. So if you weren't with us in the first episode, we nominated a bunch of people from the history of the NFL who we thought deserved a place on a fictional, hopefully not fictional, Mount Rushmore of pro football history. Uh, So we placed then three of them, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Brown, running back. Tom Brady, who just kind of burnished his credentials, I guess. And yep. then Paul Brown, a kind of pioneering coach in the 1950s, 60s. And then we gave you a bunch of other nominees. You went online and voted. And it was kind of close. Sam, how did how did it turn out? Well, it was interesting because as I looked at the choices, we had three of them are a- attached to the kind of late 80s, early 90s Giants. Yes. So yeah. it was – so, so – um, so Bill Parcells was an option. He didn't do great in this poll. How Jeff Hostetler do? Uh, did not make it. Neither did Phil Simms, <laughs> uh, um, even though all his time in the booth went for nothing. Uh, in second place uh, was Lawrence Taylor, kind of the mm-hmm. defensive star of that team. Yep. But uh, winning the poll with 40% of the vote uh, was Bill Belichick. And mm. I would say I think most of the voting even happened before the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, it right? did. Like, yep, I think, so I think Was that portion of the voting inflated in any kind of way? <laughs> I think it was deflated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thanks for voting. We won't do this every week, but we'll probably, like, fairly regularly will have Mount it Rushmore or other kinds of polls. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll come back to it and keep doing that because we do want to hear from you. So if you have thoughts about the Super Bowl, uh, please email us at samlivefromac2nd. At gmail.com. At gmail.com. We'll remind you of that a couple more times. Uh, any Adam Levine hot takes left, or are they all pretty lukewarm? Get, that point? was boring. That I was. Say. It only got more boring too. The, the fewer clothes he wore, the less interesting yeah. it got. Actually, that was boring. Th- yeah, I, th- I think you might not have been the target demographic for his disrobing. 
I don't know. I've not read a very positive response to that from anyone of any gender, of any sexuality <laughs> whatsoever, of any. I mostly preference. learned how little I know of Maroon Five. Actually, you're fine. Yeah, like, no, I'm okay with it. You're okay with that. All right. Uh, do we want to talk about Super Bowl food, or should we actually get some current events? This is, this is a current events-heavy week. So. Uh, let's, yeah. We'll come back to that in our third season. That's right. <laughs> so I think the big news around these parts, and if you didn't catch the reference, we're broadcasting from uh, Minnesota, the very frozen land of 10,000 lakes. And I think arguably— I think you mean the state of hockey? Uh, not for this particular uh, sports episode. But, yes, otherwise the state of hockey— but despite that, I think arguably the most important athlete in the state of Minnesota right now is Minnesota Lynx star Maya Moore, who hmm. last night on the Players' Tribune announced that she is going to be sitting out the 2019 WNBA season. So let me just read you a little bit of her announcement. Uh, Players' Tribune, we should talk about more, is mm-hmm. uh, a Derek Jeter-founded um, online site where players actually write their own pieces. So essays, announcements, and here's what she wrote. Uh, let's see. Okay. I will not be playing professional basketball this year. There are different ways to measure success. The success that I've been part of in basketball truly blows my mind every time I think about it, but the main way I measure success in life is something I don't often get to emphasize explicitly through pro ball. I measure success by asking, am I living out my purpose? I learned a long time ago that my purpose is to know Jesus and to make him known. Hmm. And she goes on to say she wants to spend the season, which is not the full year, it's a short year season, uh, focused on family and what she calls ministry dreams. And if you flip through her Twitter feed, you'll find uh, a big focus for her, um, human trafficking, um, incarceration, justice. She has a particular case she champions. Uh, just uh, the day before this, she retweeted something from the Tebow Foundation. Uh, she often retweets things from John Piper's Desiring God page. So this is not new for her to talk about faith, but that is at least ostensibly the main reason she's taking the year off is certainly interesting. Um, it's fairly unusual for someone at her level to take an entire right. year off. I was trying to think of analogs, and for someone kind of in the middle of their career, the best two I could find were John Riggins took off the 1980 season and got Joe Gibbs and the Red Stick, Redskins to give him a better contract. My favorite one is actually Ken Dryden, oh. who was the goalie for the Montreal Canadiens, kind of in the middle of one of their many championship runs. I think in 1973, took off the full NHL season when he was only 25 years old. So he had won Rookie of the Year, the Vezina Trophy. Um, and took the year off, went back to law school. He was a history major at Cornell, became a lawyer in Toronto, a broadcaster later on, um, got a better contract and went on to win multiple awards and then retired at age 32. Hmm. So he's the other guy in the booth for the Miracle on Ice, right, with, uh, with Al Michaels. So that's the closest I could find. You know, someone who's undoubtedly in the prime of their career for kind of interesting reasons takes a year off. Um, I think what we have to talk about is um, there are some other reasons why Maya Moore might be taking this year off. So I don't know if you all got to dig a little bit deeper into her contract negotiations with the Lynx. But a couple weeks ago, SB Nation ran a piece pointing out that um, in the WNBA, like a lot of leagues, for your first few years, I think it's like four or five years, there's kind of a rookie pay scale. Right. And then as you enter a kind of maturity of your contracts, there's a max contract like in the NBA. She would get this one way or another. But franchises uh, can designate a core player and essentially force you to stay with them for a year, and they can do this up to four times. So it's like the NFL's franchise tag, but even right. stronger. Okay. And um, the sense seemed to be that Maya Moore was not thrilled about being forced to remain with the Lynx. Hmm. 
And so, like, the links statement was very perfunctory. We essentially wish you well, support you in your work you're going to do this year, and that was all they said. So I don't know how to read this necessarily. I thought I'd just put that out there for you all to dissect. So if she comes, if she takes the year off and comes back, is she out of that um, franchise tag uh, scenario? Right. So that's what I, I don't know if they had already tagged her. And so this then essentially wipes out one of the four. I mean, that would seem to make the business sense here of why mm-hmm. you would do this. Um, the other version of this, one of our alumni, Carrie Morrison, who graduated about 12 years ago, pointed out on Facebook that um, uh, Diana Taurasi, who is arguably the greatest of all time in women's pro basketball, did this in 2015 with uh, Phoenix Mercury. She took a full year off. The reason for that, again, ostensibly, was she also plays for a Russian team. In fact, I think mm-hmm. she played for the same Russian team that Maya Moore plays for who won the EuroLeague championship last year. And the Russian team paid Tarasi 10 times her WNBA salary and didn't Mm. want her getting injured during the WNBA season. Now, Tarasi has come back and played since then. But that was the last kind of high-profile sit-out-a-year WNBA story. And I have no idea if that's also part of the Maya Moore story or not. I have a couple questions, and maybe mm-hmm. you don't know the answers to these. We might be exhausting the depths of my knowledge about the WNBA, but I'll try. Is there a huge market for um, women's basketball in Russia? in a way that allows them to have that kind of pay scale, or was this some kind of a promotional contract of some sort? Uh, I don't know exactly. I mean, they play as part of not just a Russian league, but a Euro league. And I would say generally my sense is that for most, especially elite-level WNBA players, but maybe generally women's pro players, like – that is their primary league. We don't I think, think so. Yeah, this is it, a side job to play in the well, I mean, the max contract that Myanmar is going to get is 100 I think it was like $25,000. Right. And there are seven-figure, low seven-figure contracts available in European pro women's basketball. Well, if that's the case, then Occam's Razor suggests that, th- that this is much more about whatever she gets from that contract rather than the four-year franchise, ele- cutting out one of the four years of the franchise tag here right. in Minnesota. So that wasn't reported, but I, that wouldn't surprise me if that's part of it as well, especially given that seems to be the same franchise in Russia. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it just it, it was an interesting story in a lot of ways, probably because of the local angle for us, but mm-hmm. re- religion, business, I mean, the kind of interesting place that women, elite women pro athletes are in this country where they really are these international multi, I mean, like the closest version we get in the other major men's pro sports is like baseball players, especially from Latin America, play in the winter leagues. Like Miguel right. Sano, the Twins third baseman, played Dominican winter league ball this, mm-hmm. this offseason. It is interesting, though, like, like it also in part could be. I don't want to play that much basketball. Yeah. So why would I? Why would I do this here when I'm not getting? I mean, and, and that would actually uh, lean towards some of the what she says in the Players Tribune piece about ministry and family and these types of things. Saying mm-hmm. like, if I'm playing, uh, if I'm playing in two different continents mm-hmm. year round, like I don't, I don't need to do this. I'm not beholden to that. Well, so. and I don't. I mean, so I, I introduced the other article because I think it's relevant. I also don't mean to sound unduly skeptical of what she explained in the piece because right. it fits kind of the larger profile I think she has mm-hmm. and. I wonder, maybe something to come back to, I mean, like, um, there can be change over time in how athletes understand their careers. I mean, what is the, I mean, like, in a sense, it is your livelihood. It's about making a certain level of money, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, there are other things you want to do. And we see that in a lot of ways, maybe increasingly with, dare I call them, millennial athletes who have, want to use their platform for different causes, but also might 
define purpose and success differently than generation prior would have done. So I think and, it sets and, and, up a lot of things for us to talk about later. And yet for, and I'm thinking more predominantly about the um, high paying uh, male athletic uh, enterprises, the the money is so great that we don't ever see, the, the, the two examples you gave were sort of examples either before contracts became enormous or in um, in sort of less 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 prominent positions, it, it's, it's it's almost impossible to imagine Kyrie Irving taking off a year for any kind for you know proving the world is flat or something like that. Yeah, um, no, I mean the the closest I could come probably doesn't quite work because it's at the other end of a career. But I mean, think about prominent Latter Day Saints, right? Who take a mission. Usually Sean that Bradley happens during college, mm-hmm. but it could. I mean, I don't think this happened. Keith Van Horn. I, ca- I can't remember if it's happened actually like in the middle of a pro career. Right. Because otherwise you've got to go back to like World War II and Korea. Ted Williams taking time off from two different wars in the prime of his career for right. something he viewed as a higher purpose, mm-hmm. right, as a Marine pilot. At the same time, in terms of the ridiculousness of the contracts, that actually opens the door up to say, you know what, if I've already played five years at a max NBA contract and let's say I'm 29, mm-hmm. I could imagine somebody saying, that's enough. Yeah, like I, I actually, I actually would like to take a year off, or would like, 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 how much do I need to get? You know, I mean, like, like, the, 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 I could, I could imagine that. I mean, but isn't it striking then that no one does? Right, right. I think it tells you something about LeBron James, right? Like he very easily could have done this. You can already see the other things he is and could be doing more mm-hmm. with his time. Right, and it's so like there's a level. Right, of I, 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 I'm, I'm agreeing with you that people are. In, to this degree, being kind of a rational economic actor, but there is a point where you could say, you know what, I'm, I, I, I don't need to do this. I don't need to be, you know, uh, stuck wearing my. I mean, you do see guys retire early, right. even without injuries. I mean, I mean, there there is a a huge history of that, right. you know. So so that's probably the the version where where I would say, well, we actually do see it. We do see people walk away. You know, the way, mm-hmm. best way to settle this. Is Maya Moore should just come to Bethel and be interviewed for the two five two? That would be fantastic. Open invitation. Okay, so we'll we'll effort that. I think uh, we'll come back to this. I think this bears watching. And speaking of that, uh, we ended our last episode with what we call uh, three to C. And Sam thought we should follow up with something called. called it's called worth the watch. Worth the watch because you know I hate it when people like throw stuff out, but they never follow up to see well how well did the prediction go or how well did our mm. recommendations. I mean, go? we're being held accountable for what we say. That's exactly podcast. what this oh, is. I did I'm not out. sign up for that. Yeah. So I'm just going to run through these really quick. So last week, Chris Moore said that we should uh, we should watch Ma- Michaela Schifrin in the um, the World Championships in, in uh, uh, downhill skiing. Yep. And she has already completed her first event, the Super G, and yep. she won the gold. Yep. So her next event wow. is on February 8th. But, Chris, that was, a, that was worth the watch, I would say. Absolutely. She won by two hundredths of a second, <laughs> which is not a blowout win, but a very convincing mm-hmm. victory. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also mention, I also said that this might be um, Lindsey Vaughn's last race. Unfortunately, she took a very ugly spill mm-hmm. um, r- skiing right after Schifrin did. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I mean, this is probably the end of a very illustrious. I think she career. was at least planning to compete. In she was hoping event, to yeah. keep. To, she was hoping to ski again, right. but I mean, this is. I mean, it was sort of a a coda. Yeah. I think. All right, Chris. Rec- uh, Chris Garrett's recommended the Bean Pot Tournament. Mm-hmm. Both those games were good games. Harvard, two to one. Boston College beat Harvard two one. Mm-hmm. Northeastern beat Boston U two one. So they're set to play the championship game on Monday, February eleventh. So worth the watch. Worth the watch. Ding. Uh, Maybe you put it in ding. I didn't need to say that. No, I like I like <laughs> your ding better. That that works. Uh, I I said you should watch James Harden this week. He had a a 
as of last week, a 24-game streak of scoring 30 points or more. In his three games, he scored 30, 43, and 44 points, making this now the third longest streak in NBA history. Uh, he's four games behind second. Will Chamberlain had 31, but he's 38 games behind the longest streak, <laughs> which was Will Chamberlain with 65 games. <laughs> so uh, Harden's got Very a little short. way to go there. And then finally, I also recommended you watch Puppy Bowl. Uh, Puppy Bowl 15 was great. Uh, Team Rough finally beat Team Fluff. Uh, Fifty-nine to fifty. Sounds exciting. Lots yeah. of points. And yeah. I will say, I will say, like you're going to say, oh yeah, but these are they always like make these so they're close. Two years ago, the score was ninety-one to thirty-eight. So like, oh. it is not. This is not always. Huh. That was not as exciting of a game. Gotcha. Interestingly, game MVP was uh, a twenty-week-old lab chow mix named Bumble, uh, <laughs> who overcame both visual and hearing impairment to win uh, the MVP, even though he was on the losing team. Okay. So. Worth the watch. So four for four? Four for four, my friend. Wow. All right. It's hard to – it's only down <laughs> to go from there, but we'll try again. No, like James second. Harden, let's keep oh, that that's streak right. going. That's the way to look at it. Do, so, Do you happen to know off the top of your head what his current uh, season average is for points? It's it's in the high 36s now. It's like 36-7 okay. So he's something. got a little bit of breathing room then. A little bit. A little right. bit, yeah. Cool. Okay, so we will come back in segment two to learn a little bit more about ourselves as we look at our own sports histories. This week in sports history, Hialeah, Florida, February 7, 1969, Diane Crump becomes the first woman in American sports history to ride as a professional jockey in a paramutual horse race, placing ninth aboard Bridal and Bit. Two weeks later, she wins her first of over 200 career victories. Nagano, Japan, February 8, 1998. In the first women's ice hockey game in the Winter Olympic history, Finland shuts out Sweden 6-0. The Finns go on to take bronze in a tournament dominated by Team USA. Orlando, Florida, February 9, 1992. Months after announcing that he had contracted HIV, Magic Johnson comes out for retirement to score 25 points and dish nine assists in the NBA All-Star Game. That summer, Johnson helps lead the first Dream Team to victory at the Barcelona Olympics. Tokyo, Japan, February 11, 1990. Buster Douglas shocks Mike Tyson, knocking out the previously undefeated heavyweight boxing champion in the 10th round. What an uppercut by Douglas, and down goes Tyson. He's... It's over. It's over. Mike Tyson has been knocked out. Unbelievable. This makes Cinderella look like a sad story. What Buster Douglas has done here tonight. Let's go ahead and call it the biggest upset in the history of heavyweight championship fights. Say it now, gentlemen. James Buster Douglas, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Okay, welcome back to segment two. Again, we'll use segment two for a variety of purposes. We've got an interview coming up next week with mm-hmm. the leading sports historian. But this week, we're going to treat ourselves as experts on our own lives, in a sense, and talk about our relationship to sports. Let's just start with this. Uh, there are lots of ways you can engage with sports. We'll talk mm-hmm. about being a fan, a scholar. Um, 
are we athletes? We, we should probably admit up front <laughs> our level of ability or inability as uh, competitors ourselves. And I, mm-hmm. I can go first if you want, or I can please do. I, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I would say, like, I actually am competent at several sports. Like, I, I'm ungainly in many ways. But, like, I, I was... I was a decent jump-shooting, non-jumping basketball player who played a couple years of JV high school basketball. was not especially good at it, but enjoyed mm. basketball a lot. Um, my favorite sport I probably made clear is baseball. What's odd is I didn't play any competitive baseball. I never played t-ball, Little League, Babe Ruth, American Legion, anything. And then all of a sudden in my 11th grade year, I went out for the team in high school and actually managed to get two varsity letters, which tells you a lot about Mons Park Academy baseball <laughs> in the early 1990s. What's really odd about it is my entree to that was in 10th grade as the team's statistician. And that was how I joined the team and then went out as an outfielder the next year. And so that's kind of – that's where my sports career began. And that is exactly myself. the Stan Musial story. <laughs> it's, a, it's an old, old tale in sports history. I, my, my nickname was actually Rapid Stats. There you a go. Terrible athlete. Wow. <laughs> so, okay, I got to score. Chris Moore. Let's join in. Well, I am – uh, I, I have some oh, – I actually do hold a couple of Ohio records as one of the worst all-time track athletes. <laughs> okay. I didn't you know they kept that end. So I, I should mention that I, um, I grew up in a small rural area with not a lot of extracurricular activities. I think if I had gone to a suburban school or an urban uh, inver- environment, I probably would have been on the debate team or in the drama club or um, – chess team who knows mm-hmm. but none of those things existed and if you were going to do anything with your friends in my area it was mm-hmm. going to be a sport and so a lot of people end up doing sports that probably wouldn't have otherwise and in some ways there's something really edifying about mm-hmm. that because it's uh you have a lot of people who are marginally talented doing something but doing it for camaraderie reasons yep. and so i was our school's miler and two miler uh mm-hmm. on, a, on the track team and I was real bad at it. I was okay in the mile, but the two mile was just was 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 beyond me. And to make matters worse, uh, in the in the same league as us was a gentleman um, who would go on to become Big Ten Freshman of the Year in the mile and two mile, wow. and would go on to you know win multiple marathons and was a, an excellent distance runner. And I had to compete against him regularly. Um, let me rephrase that. In the two mile, I got to be lapped by him regularly. Um, it was. Uh, it, it, it was t- taught me humility. Do you uh, continue to run? I run for exercise now, okay. not for n- uh, not for racing. And I also did cr- cross country, also for the camaraderie. And but um, I I never participated in basketball. A little short for that. Uh, broke my dad's heart. He was a he was a baseball player all through his mm. high school years. I I never got into baseball. Sam, I know you went to a sports powerhouse, but I thought I did in Faribault, Minnesota. <laughs> I did. I was not part of that so much. So I, uh, I played. I was a uh, a perfectly mediocre basketball player. I was the I was the guy who you came off the bench once the game was decided. You filled the stat line in your minutes, though. I did, though. I no, like I, I. Because nobody know who knows me. I'm going to brag about my <laughs> ninth grade basketball was my absolute uh, favorite year of basketball because, although I went to a tiny school. We had a ninth grade basketball team that had 15. There was only 39 people in my graduating class. We had 15 fresh or freshmen on that team. Hmm. Um, so actually, in my if you ever visit my office, I have a big blown up picture of my freshman basketball team because it's almost every guy in my class is sure. in that picture. Um, but I played I played in 22 games that year and scored 30 points, and that's hard to wow. do. <laughs> I I was I'm, I'm a good I was a good shooter um, uh, and shot blocker and and I fouled people a lot because. Right. 
when you get in for the last like 36 seconds of a uh-huh. game, my goal was just to do something. So if <laughs> I wanted to score, I wanted to get a rebound, I wanted to block a shot, I wanted to foul somebody. I just I didn't want to have zeros across the board. So you're not a fan of the trillion? <clears throat> no, no, no. You you need to you and and I would say there was like four or five of us on the bench, and our goal was always like, how much can we do in the minute and a half we have? So like we tried to could we could we collectively score ten points in our in our time, or could we get a certain number of rebounds or things like that? Mm-hmm. So we had little goals for when we got into the game. Um, but I will say the highlight of my athletic career was when I was in fourth and fifth grade. I was it's the only sport I ever started on. Um, I was a starting defenseman for a two year undefeated soccer team, mm. and it was. It, it it truly is the athletic highlight of my life because I was not fast and not skilled, but I was not afraid to, like, go after the ball and, like, take somebody out at the legs if I had yeah. to. And, yeah. like, so that was – that was I, I dream of those days when, you know, my fourth and fifth grade soccer days. And what's great about it is we never practiced. We just showed up and played the games, and we were undefeated for two years. As mm. it should be. Yeah. No, okay, I think we've talked enough about mm-hmm. our athletic prowess. Let's move on. There are other ways to interact with sports. Uh, and I think mostly, I'm going to guess, for the three of us, it's as fans of sports. And so let me ask you kind of a two-part question. What is – I'll ask you there, what is your favorite sport, and kind of like college pro, whatever, and the sport? And then what is your favorite, um, I guess, memory or experience as a fan? And we'll hmm. kind of reflect on what that means and why we're fans and all that. But uh, let's just start with kind of favorite sport, favorite experience. Chris, do you want to start us? Sure. Uh, my, uh, what, as a kid growing up, my favorite sport was basketball. And pro, the, college, both? Um, high school? Sorry. Pro and college. Okay. And, and high school, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, I should mention the reason why basketball is my favorite sport is my high school didn't have a football team. We were too small, too rural. Some of the schools around us had football. And, in fact, since uh, I graduated, the, the school is now beginning – Weirdly, the arduous process of developing a football program by itself, or is yes, co-op? Wow. correct. Okay. Um, but uh, because football wasn't <coughs> part of my lived experience, my friends didn't grow up playing. We, you know, we played backyard football, and that was it. Basketball was the sport people played for comp- for competitive mm-hmm. purposes, and so I grew up liking my high school team, and that translated into into college and, and especially pro. Um, but as I got into college and then got in, into my young, uh, young adult life, uh, football came to occupy nearly the same pride of place. Um, so especially college football and to a much lesser extent pro football. Does that have anything to do with your graduate alma mater? It does. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to become a part of the Ohio State University system without mm-hmm. adopting the civil religion of, of football. <laughs> Okay, we'll talk about that more next week. How about you, Chris? Um, <clears throat> so, again, my favorite sport is baseball. So, uh, I mean, I, I want to say I'm a diehard Minnesota Twins fan, but it's not true because I went to college on the other side of the country in 1993, the same year you went to that Twins-Mariners game. And as Twins fans know, that began one of the worst stretches of Twins baseball right up until about the year 2000. This is only about seven years. Of and so I, I really checked out of baseball. It's hard for me even to believe now that I, partly it was because I was in Virginia, which doesn't have a pro sports team. Then I was in Connecticut. I went to a Yankees game once. But I was pretty checked out of baseball, but happened to come back to Minnesota as the Twins were getting good again. Mm-hmm. And the only jersey I own is a Johan Santana jersey from like 2006, I think, like so like it's it's really reaffirmed for me. Like I'm not just a like I love the history of baseball, but like that is the one team I rise and fall with. Even though I, I would say I follow almost every of the major team sports decently closely and root for the the local side. Um, Sam, what's your favorite sport? And then we should talk memories. Here. Yeah, I, I will say. I mean, I grew up loving. Actually, I grew up as a little kid not caring about sports at all. And I probably around seventh or eighth grade 
decided I was going to get into sports because I thought that was a way I could relate to other. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a deeply introverted, socially anxious person. So that was like I could have conversations about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a way to relate to my parents who are both big sports mm-hmm. fans. So like I made a conscious decision to do that. So uh, in high school, like I loved baseball, but mostly like baseball history mm-hmm. and, and, and statistics and things like that. The sport I actually love to watch uh, most is basketball, and it's because it's the one I feel like I understand the most, and I can imagine doing some of those things the most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what's your favorite sports memory? My favorite sports memory is actually um, a high school game that I went to when I was teaching in Mobile, Alabama. Um, it was the first game of the year, so I went. I taught at a school called McGill Tool in high school, and they had uh, not a great football program. Um, but the year that I was there, their first game of the year, August twenty sixth, uh, nineteen ninety nine. They played uh, their crosstown rival, Murphy High School, and it was like the longest-running um, rivalry in the history of mm-hmm. Alabama football. At least that's what they claimed. And it was the most incredible game I ever went to. The, the, uh, it went into triple overtime. Uh, in the last overtime, McGill Tulin had the ball. Murphy had already uh, kicked a field – no, excuse me, McGill started – uh, they had fourth and 26. This is like the college style, right? Mm-hmm. On fourth and 26, their quarterback – heaved a, a, a pass, guy caught it in the end zone, So the, and then they kicked the extra point, so they were up 7 to nothing. Murphy comes down, scores right away. They bring in the quarterback to try to block the kick because he's 6'6". This is his first year starting a quarterback, and he blocks the kick. Wow. And it was just like it was <laughs> this impossible game. Like I can't believe we had school. It was a Thursday night. I can't believe we had school the next day. It's the I mean, it was my introduce, introduction to Alabama and Alabama high school football, and it was – it was like watching a poem play out in front of you. It was beautiful. Mm. Chris, what about you? Uh, in high school, um, my freshman year, we had our most successful basketball team. We went to uh, state regionals. Mm. And that um, that run, I was I, I should mention, I was also the team statistician at that mm-hmm. point for See? the basketball yeah. team. So I, I got to ride the bus and, and you know sort of vicariously lived through that. But um, that was my most uh, lived fo- uh, sports experience. I was uh, for just being a, a, a participant or being a, um, a, an audience member. I was at the 2006 Ohio State Michigan football game, which took place in Ohio Stadium, which was when Ohio State and Michigan were number one and two in the country. Everyone claimed it was the national championship game. Um, that the actual nat- BCS championship game was irrelevant. <coughs> of course, then Ohio State, who won the game, forty-three to thirty-nine, then went on to lose to an upstart Florida team coached by Urban Meyer. Uh, uh, yeah, oh. but that um, that was the most um, euphoric hmm. audi- uh, euphoric um, audience I've ever been a part of for a, for a sports event. So mine isn't actually a game. It's kind of a, I'll make it a two part story. So my favorite player on the Twins, of course, growing up was Kirby Puckett, who's their star center fielder in the '87 and '91 World Series team. Hit his career end short um, with a uh, eye problem, and like I wasn't following, but I, I remember like crying watching the press conference where mm-hmm. Kirby Puckett announced he wouldn't play anymore. And then 2001, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I woke up at 3 in the morning and drove from New Haven, Connecticut to Cooperstown, New York, and planted myself in the outfields that I have a seat to watch him be inaugurated into the Hall of Fame. And Mm. that's my greatest memory. But you can't complete that memory without realizing Kirby Puckett had a pretty troubled end to his life. Um, uh, Marriage gone south, domestic abuse charges. And then he died young in 2006. And I was back in Minnesota. And I went to the Metrodome on a cold, frozen rain kind of spring day. And I think there were like 
probably it was 10, 15,000 people showed up to watch this kind of ceremony remembering Kirby Puckett. And mm-hmm. so it's a very bittersweet memory for me. Um, and so that evokes you know, emotions in me. It makes me think we should close by asking as we think about our experiences as players, as fans, um, other roles, those memories. Why do we love sports? And maybe we shall spot why we don't love sports. I mean, I think we've heard you all hint at this, you know, the, the euphoria of these particular moments, right? Like there is mm-hmm. something about the lived experience of being there with whether it's 100 or 100,000 other people to experience a great sporting moment. Uh, it could be the kind of personal investment in a player's career, right? Like we, we have a sense of vicarious relationship. We've talked about camaraderie, community are important. Um, I'll just, I'll start by adding one other thing that I should say, like to me, <clears throat> my playing career is, like, the high school part is meaningless. But I still played a lot of sports because I played sports with my dad as long as I can remember. My dad was a really good athlete. And it's everything from basketball and baseball to football to he'd even play soccer with me, even though he hates soccer, to, like, company picnic, picnics, playing softball with him. And now, like, I don't play hardly any sports except I play a lot of sports with my son mm-hmm. who loves sports. And I think often about the importance of, I think, generally familial relationships in sports, but father-son is kind of a cliche, right? Think of Field of Dreams and Kevin Costner's care. Like, he had a bad relationship with his father, but they could always talk about baseball, right? Like, and we should come back to that and talk about, like, masculinity and sports and relationships. But, like, to me, it's impossible for me to separate my love of sports from my relationship with my dad and now with my son. Mm. And so that, that colors everything else as I think about sports. What, what uh, else do we love or not love about for sports? For me, it is the fact that it is a a real live event that doesn't have a script. And, mm-hmm. like, you can go – we talked about boring games earlier, right? You can go to a game and it can be boring. But every time you go, nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, there, this is one of my favorite uh, uh, piece of, little pieces of sports writing is after Bobby Thompson hits a shot heard around the world, um, Red Smith for uh, one of the New York papers – uh, wrote this piece, and he has a line there where he says, the art of fiction is dead. It's like reality has mm-hmm. swallowed up the possibilities of fiction because in the real world, anything can happen. And and, and it's not – there is no author who's like putting their will on it. Instead, it is it is this battle of wills, you know, between mm-hmm. these athletes, between these teams. And sometimes you – sometimes these inexplicably – amazing things happen like a game shouldn't go to triple overtime but sometimes it does Mm -hmm. and if you're there to have watched it it's this amazing thing and to like underscore that you have if you don't know sam you have to understand how seriously sam takes fiction yeah like this is (laughs) it's all that i read right 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 Right. okay chris anything else yeah with that in mind even though anything can happen um there is a there is a powerful script that follows sports and that script gives us a a vocabulary with which to talk to each other. Uh, we talk, you know, we often long for community. We long for association. We long for senses of togetherness. And sports provide us uh, not not necessarily a way to do that, but a means by which we can prosecute that when it happens. Um, a, a, a way to live in uh, a, a thing to talk about, and but more than a thing to talk about, a thing to live through. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why we're fans. Mm-hmm. And it's, it oftentimes it has little to do with an actual direct affinity for the sport itself. Or even specific players. And Jerry Seinfeld makes the joke about rooting for laundry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we, we do this, and we do it because of the, what it provides for us in terms of our own sense of community and togetherness. And I think we live in a climate, as you've been talking about, that has seasons, but not everybody does. So it marks the passage of time. Yep. You yep. know, like <clears throat> my son this morning was talking about it's time to start paying attention to basketball because the Super Bowl is over. And it's like, like it, is the, it, it is the thing that marks time. Do we want to talk about why we don't love sports or save that for another I think episode? that's what the rest of these podcasts will be. About. I think that. Because <laughs> next week as we talk to, um, talk to our guests, we need to think about how you think critically about sports. And yeah. at the same time, I think it's okay that we start by talking about how we think appreciatively mm-hmm. and maybe lovingly about sports too and aspirationally about it. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll come back to all of this. But next week, maybe we'll turn to the other side of it. So uh, we'll be back after a short break to look at three things coming up that we think you might want to watch. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com. Before we go, let's give you three to see for the coming weekend. Uh, Chris Moore, do you want to start us? Yes. Um, despite the fact that my own beloved Arsenal Gunners are slipping down the ranks uh, this season, um, on February 10th, Man City squares off against Chelsea in the most important premiership match of the weekend. Uh, Manchester City sits at third on the table and Chelsea is fourth. According to experts, Man City has a 60% chance of victory, but they need to win to have any hope of challenging Liverpool and Tottenham at the top of the standings. How long does the premiership season go? Like, where are we? It goes into late April, May. Okay. So we're getting to crunch time. Yep, exactly. All right, I'll stay in uh, Great Britain to talk about the 20th edition of Rugby's Six Nations Championship, which started last weekend. So this weekend is the second round. So the Six Nations include France and Italy, but four of the six are from Great Britain. So Ireland, uh, Wales, Scotland, and England. Uh, Ireland has won three of the last five Six Nations, including the 2018 tournament, and it's currently ranked number two in the world behind New Zealand. So Ireland faces number seven Scotland on Saturday in Edinburgh. The winner receives the coveted centenary, I believe it's pronounced Quake, trophy. It's a kind of bowl. So within this competition, there are all sorts of kind of binational sub, like kind of trophy mm-hmm. matches or like rivalry matches. So Ireland-Scotland is one to watch this weekend. Well, I feel like I should stay in the British Isles and tell you about the Quidditch World Cup, which is coming up. But that's not what I'm going to do. This Saturday, February 9th, 5 p.m. Central on ESPN. So if if these are three to see, here's how you can see it. Uh, Number two, Duke uh, visits number three, Virginia. Uh, in men's college basketball. Mm-hmm. So they they played earlier this year, and Duke won 72-70. to 70. Uh, The reason that I picked this out, other than it's a, I love college basketball and it's a great college mm-hmm. basketball game, is that uh, Duke has two super freshmen, and one of them is a super-duper-duper duper freshman. Uh, Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, they combined for 45 points a game uh, and over 16.5 rebounds a game. Watching Zion is the closest thing we're going to get to seeing what LeBron would have been like oh, in, sure. in college. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, 
he's I mean you, we talked about one of the reasons to watch is to watch a superstar athlete do their thing and uh, and Zion fits the bill for this that. This is his only Duke season likely? Oh certainly. Okay. Certainly. Yeah. Is it possible to have two ACC teams got top Number one seeds in March. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. there's definitely been. I assume that happens yep. occasionally. Yep. yep. All right. Well, it's been a fun episode. Again, I think we're hitting our stride. Uh, next week, we'll be back with Art Remillard of St. Francis University, who will talk to us about what it means to study sports as a scholar, and maybe a little bit about running, which is one of his particular passions. And of course, we'll talk more about what's happening in the world of sports. We'll check back on our three to see, have more sports history. But until then, Chris, take it away. All right. Shoot straight. Go Royals. Go Royals.